and welcome to Technocast, a podcast showcasing research from across the arts and humanities. I'm Isabel Sykes and today I'm bringing you the last instalment of our census series. We're first going to hear from Emma, who's an AHRC-funded creative writing doctoral researcher at Brunel University. Her work uses archival research and experimental literary forms and practices to reclaim the voices of marginalised women from history. Today, Emma is sharing with us a piece of creative writing developed through her work with the 1761 Harris's List of Covent Garden Ladies. This was an annual directory of women sex workers based in and around Covent Garden in the late 18th century. And Emma uses this document as a starting point to bring these women to life through experimental fictional narrative. To accompany this piece, Emma actually sent me a perfume sample from the London perfumer Floris, with whom she's doing some archival work. The perfume, Limes, was one that was developed and used during this period, and Emma invited me to use this sample to smell along to the story, enhancing the sensory experience of this piece. Unfortunately, the Technicast infrastructure does not allow for every listener to receive a perfume sample in order to do the same, so I'm afraid you'll just have to use your imagination. I'll leave you with Emma now, and I'll rejoin you for the interview afterwards. And by my sweet perfume, you should know me. Prelude. If she had a mind to it, my mother could have sold my maidenhead fifty times over, but her coffee house is no more king's. Indeed, it is a most respectable establishment on the corner of Hedge Lane, overlooking Charing Cross, and well placed to attract trades, horse guards, and treasury clerks alike. And mother is a godly woman who raised me in a most proper manner. Father's death in my fourteenth year, though a great loss to our family, saw Mother step from the kitchen to stand full square among the tables, benches and chairs, and declare twas her name also that swung above the door, and she would see that name regarded across London for the quality of its conversation and refreshments alike. With Mother in charge, the house was full from morn to night, a buzz with gentlemen, common men and even noblemen, come to quaff her fine beverages, nourish themselves with her fine repasts, discuss the latest news of the town and cast longing, sideways glances at the comely girl's mother employed to wait there. Many a match began with the placing of a coffee cup, and that despite mother being most strict that no advances be made upon her premises. Mother herself was a handsome woman, and attracted much attention from her patrons, but she ever declared one husband and one child were more than enough for her, and besides, Who needed another man to tend when one had a coffee-house full of them? As her only daughter, I was subject to more rigorous strictures than those girls in her employ. I worked the long day beside her, and was taught proper manners and godly conduct besides. She was not too displeased when I was taught to read and then write by generous Pole, who came about the coffee-shop each day to bring the new sheets from her mother's print-shop in the Strand. Pole loved to tarry at the coffee-shop, coming to us last on her route, so that she might sit a while and enjoy Mother's fine cooking. Pole was as clever as she was handsome, and she would trade wits with even the most educated of gentlemen, 
watching her better a man who thought her but an ignorant wench was a most superlative entertainment. Mother allowed Paul's lessons so I could read the Bible to her each night after closing, and though she discouraged the reading of novels, newspapers and treatises, she could do little to prevent it not reading herself. I soon became as familiar with the politicking of Whigs and Tories as I was with the Psalms, and I followed the conversation that flourished in the shop as I worked. I kept my tongue around the men, but Paul and I would converse at length about the French war, the German king, and the many failures of Butte and Newcastle. The men who visited the coffee shop were of little interest to me, and Mother had made no mention of marriage despite me having turned nineteen. Perhaps she hoped to save me the drudgery of wifely duties and to pass the business into my hands, but my education had excited the desire for a life of greater meaning despite my sex. That, I should guess, was my greatest flaw, for it was that appetite for life that, by degrees, led me to this table and this conversation with you. The Irishman smiled and suggested more wine, signalling to the boy for another bottle, and giving no indication that this bottle, like the last, would find its greater part poured down his throat, and its entirety upon my account. Despite his fine silk coat and bright shoe buckles, my interlocutor smelled. His fingers were filthy and stained with ink, the frequency with which he raised his glass to his lips, giving me ample opportunity to study them. Much as I resented having to tell him my story, I was resigned to the necessity of doing so. I took the handkerchief, the dear handkerchief, from my pocket and made pretense of dabbing my lips to fill my nostrils with its faint perfume. When the wine was brought, I continued my tale. Top Notes London is a most odiferous town, with smells noxious, noisome, wholesome and delightful at every turn, but from my earliest days the scent of coffee prevailed. Bitter, warm, spicy, earthy, nutty, smoky, flowery and sweet. So many words to describe the odour of the invigorating brew, the preparation of which I learned so young it seems to have ever been in my mind. Our patrons brought their own odours. Sweat, shit, stinking breath, pomades and powders scented with civet, with musk, and with a thousand flowers and herbs whose names I could only guess at. Most prominent of all was tobacco. Whether smoked in a pipe or sniffed and sneezed as snuff, it competed with the coffee, its smoke making my eyes sting and my throat scratch. I hated it and I hated the bravado of those strutting bows who sought to make an honour of causing the most offence by its hand. The little poet laughed, and his face showed not that he had felt the barb of my arrow. Perhaps he was not the fine wit he believed himself to be. It was into this smoke and splutter a fine gentleman stepped in one bright February afternoon, offering his penny and taking a seat among a group who greeted him warmly. He was not thirty, tall and dressed in a pale grey velvet coat with modest sleeves and silver buttons. The silver buckles of his shoes were plain but polished, and the overall effect was one of elegance. He smiled at me, 
looking me full in the face with grey eyes fringed with the dark lashes of a girl as he asked for coffee. A lively intelligence played in those eyes, and I lowered my gaze, blushing at the attention of a man of rank. When I stood over him to set down his cup, a crisp scent, reminiscent of fresh lemons, filled my nose, cutting through the fog of tobacco smoke and conversation. He thanked me as I stood there, transported to the market at Covent Garden, where the green and the ripe lay side by side to test a knowing nose. Baskets of bright fruit from faraway orchards with their promise of sweetness. I tarried too long. He noticed my hesitation, amusement playing about his features, and he asked my name. Polly, I replied. Tis my mother's establishment. After that he came each day spending long hours discussing the affairs of the town with his friends, and he watched me listening, watched my eyelids lower in rapture at his redolence, and he always left coin upon the table at his departure. I learned his name, heard his friends mock him for his wealth and fortune. I learned he was not long returned from a tour of Europe, and of his father's expectations he would sail west and work to increase his family's interests there. I hoped he would not sail soon, for it was his smile that lit my day, his keen but kind grey eyes that pushed me from my bed each morning to light the stove and grind the beans for our thirsty patrons. By turns we began to converse. When he learned that I could read, that I was as familiar with the machinations of Whitehall as he and his friends, it became his habit to call me over and ask my opinion of whatever topic currently animated his group. He brought me Gray's odes and Burke's philosophising, asking me my opinion of each and revelling, it seemed, in every discovery of my mind. He regaled my starving ears with descriptions of the sublime landscapes of the Swiss Alps, the fecund beauty of Italian lemon groves, and the painted splendour of the Parisian Beaumonde, noting that none could match the beauty to be found at home. Heart Notes Mother disapproved of me conversing with the patrons beyond the pleasantries of good service, but I was smitten. Paul proved a better audience for my gasping tales of Sir's every word and every glance. Happiness lay solely upon his arrival at the shop, and misery attended his departure. If, some day, he did not come at all, I was bereft, and Mother would chide me for my sullenness. He made me a present of a fine lace handkerchief soaked in the perfume I knew him by, so that I might remember him during each long night of separation. I kept it next to my heart, and as the intoxicating scent of citrus faded, fine flowers took its place and delighted my senses. When Summer opened her bountiful arms, Sir asked first to take a walk with me along the Mall, and once this habit was established, he asked then to dine with me. Ever genteel and solicitous of my happiness, the love that blossomed that June exceeded the beauty of the roses in the royal garden and smelled more sweet. My every fine feeling was returned to me a hundredfold by this most attentive and generous of gentlemen. I do not regret the loss of my maidenhead, for it brought such raptures as I had not known could be felt. 
Our happiness was complete, our conversations animated and informed. Through him, my education in the fine arts was as thorough as my education in the arts of Venus. Two doves were we, and lodgings were sought in St James's, where we might live happily together as husband and wife. I knew an honourable match could not be made, and that we would never stand in front of the priest, our rank being as incompatible as our minds were sympathetic, but love conquered all practical considerations, and matrimonial happiness was ours. Mother was distraught at the prospect of my ruination, but my Colin was devoted to his Phoebe, and his heart was promised to I alone. I discovered the source of his intoxicating perfume, walked arm in arm with him through St James's to the little Spaniard Floris, who barbered and concocted fragrant elixirs for the quality. Two bottles were filled. Two pairs of finely scented grey leather gloves were purchased, and I was never again without the essence of my love. Not at church, not when I visited mother, not even when he was recalled to his Surrey estate. Base notes. He had prevaricated too long. His father's expectation was that he would return for the summer, leaving the rising stench of the Thames for the wide pastures of the Surrey Hills. Nothing could make him quit me that summer, and the first frosts had sent their needles across the window panes of our chamber before he resolved to return to his family. He promised twould be no more than a few weeks that his father had business he wanted to discuss, business so assured could be exacted in London as well as anywhere. A thousand kisses preceded his departure, our gloved hands clinging to each other in the cold morning air, even as his carriage began its journey. We promised to write each day, and he left monies and servants to facilitate the delivery of our correspondence. True to his word, he wrote, cross-writing sentiments so sweet as to render me helpless and awash with tears, longing for his return. I read each letter a thousand times, and replied in kind each day. At Christmas, Sir sent a silver vinaigrette filled with his perfume, and a silver chatelaine to hang it upon. Monies arrived each month so that I might maintain the household, as a good wife should, but as the weeks passed, I grew uneasy, and then lonely. I returned to the coffee-house, but in my fine grey silk dress there was no place for me. The kitchen was too dirty, and no one could mistake me for a serving girl. Indeed, the sly looks of Sir's friends disconcerted me terribly. I still accompanied Mother to church, but she could not conceal her sadness at the path I had taken. At Candlemas he returned to me, bringing the fragrant light of the lemon orchards, the warmth of the summer bouquet, and an earthier note that tinged those beloved eyes with sadness. But my own joy could not conscience this dolefulness in my lover, and my passion soon restored him to himself. We passed happy weeks together indeed, but something in Sir was changed, and as the cherry trees blossomed, he told me the business his father wished to discuss. He was to be wed. To a woman of good birth and great fortune, he was to be wed. 
in front of the priest, in front of the noble and the fashionable, in front of God, he was to be wed. All the assurances he could give me that his heart was mine, and that I would remain in good keeping, that he would visit me as often as possible, that I would in all respects be his true wife, could not quell the unease that gripped me. Such presentiment was well founded. By Whitson he was married, and I was moved to gloomy third-floor rooms in Soho Square, so that my presence might not cause consternation to the bride when the happy couple took up residence in St James's Square. I read of their return to town in the Gazette before I saw him, and when he did call, his manner was much changed. His gifts were still generous, and his passions were easily aroused, but he was not the man who had promised me his heart for ever. We continued in this way, with his occasional visits, through the entirety of the season. He had promised I should never be left wanting, and it was my sincere hope he should settle an income upon me, but, alas, he said his father would not allow it, and he did not wish to cause offence to his wife. It has been six months, or more, since I last saw him. I read of the birth of his son and heir. Perhaps, if I had provided him with such issue, he would have remembered me longer. But such speculation does not change my circumstance, which, sir, as you know, is that I am in need of a living, and have little but my beauty and education to provide it. My companion raised his glass to his lips and took a large gulp of wine before speaking. "'Tis a sad tale indeed, and I thank you for the telling of it, but it is not an uncommon one, at least not in our present environs. He gestured lavishly about him, and I affected a smile. But there is no doubt that I and our mutual friend, the esteemed head-waiter of these premises, can be of assistance to you, should the circumstances be propitious. An unpleasant, avaricious look came across his grimy visage, and I took the cue, pushing a purse across the table. His grubby hand shot from the rat-hole of his pocket, grabbed the purse and returned to its nest. Very good, he smiled. And under what name should you be listed? Polly Hunt, I replied. Of Soho Square. He nodded. I will be sure to give the best account of you I can. On that, you have my honour. Honour? There is scant honour to be had in the Shakespeare Tavern, I thought, and scant honour to be had about my own person, for Polly is not the name I was given before God, nor tis it a fondness, but a name assumed to protect my mother's sensibilities as much as my own tender heart and hunt, because now I am in search of a new keeper, having little taste for open trade, and no illusions left as to the usefulness of men. I did not tell the Irish poet that in truth I share a name with the infamous Miss Hayes, at whose table he is reportedly always welcome, and the German princess to whom our king shall soon be wed, a marriage of great political advantage just as was the marriage of my love to his heiress, or so he would have me believe. 
I bade the Irishman good night and hoped not to meet him again, but, given his proclivities, I knew this to be unlikely. I put the scented handkerchief back in my pocket, noting there was a small hole inside it that required mending, and, pulling my cloak about my shoulders, I walked northeast to Soho. In honour of Polly Hunt, Soho Square. This lady's mother kept a celebrated coffee house near Charing Cross, and few women are better bred. There is something grand in her appearance, which the elegance of her manners no way contradicts. At present, she seems to incline too much to fat. Though we enter her here, we cannot pretend to say she was ever ready at the sound of a tavern bell. Who first initiated her into the service of Venus, we know not, but her connections with a young baronet of the West, who is said to be one of the richest commoners in England, are well known, though that no longer exists. Those that know her says she has a mind as well as a body which a man of taste would wish to enjoy. That's the entry from Harris's list of Covent Garden ladies, 1761. Hi, Emma. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Izzy. How are you? Yeah, really well, thank you. Um, thanks again for sending in the talk. I really liked listening to it. And smelling along was honestly so... <laughs> it was so evocative. Like I never, I've never done that before. And it really just was really transporting. I really, really enjoyed the experience. I wanted it to Thank go you. on forever. I was like, I could listen to a whole audio book just with a kind of a menu of smells just going along. But yeah, yeah. Smell is such a, an evocative sense. Um, and there is lots of sort of neuro, neuroscientific research into into smell and the, the bits of our brain that it kind of switches on. Um, but yeah, I think it's very closely linked to to memory and obviously um, to emotion as well. So yeah, I really wanted to sort of explore that in a in a narrative. Well, it works really really well, um, and yeah, I've got lots to ask about it. So I'm going to dive straight into the kind of meat mm, of it. If that's it. all right with you, of course, um, of course. So the piece that the listeners will have just heard ends with you reading from an entry about the protagonist of the narrative. Holly Hunt, uh, which was recorded in the 1761 edition of Harris's List of Covent Garden Ladies. Um, so I wanted to ask how you first came across this source and what made you decide to build this piece of work around it? Yeah, OK. So I was aware of Harris's List, been aware of it for uh, many decades. Um, back in the 90s, uh, I, I did my undergraduate degree and, and my first master's degree. Um, the first in English and the second specialising in 18th century literature. So I'd come across it at that point. Um, there wasn't really a lot written about it and it was generally sort of presented as a, a as a sort of slightly funny, titillating object, uh, you know, sort of strange curiosity. Um, and so when I came back into education in 2019 and into a, a creative writing master's and then PhD, my love for that period and my love for the literature of that period, you know, hadn't diminished in those decades. And 
those women in some way had always kind of been with me. Uh, and the thing about the list is, you know, it was published over many, many years. It was an annual edition and it passed between different publishers and, and different authors. But the the general view is that um, those first, so the earliest editions up until um, the death of Sam Derrick, who, who was supposed to have written those early editions, uh, it's felt that they were very much based on real people who were living and working in the area. Uh, and then sort of later in its history, it becomes a little bit more gentrified, but also a little bit more explicitly titillating. So this, the focus of it shifts slightly and the presentation of the women in those later versions tends to focus on what they look like and the kind of services that they provide. So if you like, it becomes a, a titillating object in and of itself. But certainly those earlier editions feel more biographical and a lot of the detail that's included about the women in in um, those earlier editions of the list isn't particularly to do with their work you know it's to do with a lot of its origin stories essentially which for a writer is really well that's interesting that's the sort of stuff you want to get your want to get your teeth into and the 1761 edition is the earliest edition that exists in a public library it's the earliest known edition I mean obviously it costs two shillings and sixpence um, the editions went through multiple prints, but it's it was a slightly dis- it's a bit like holding on to, I don't know, a Christmas edition of the Radio Times, for example. Do you know what I mean? Or Saturday's mm-hmm. newspaper supplement in that it's seen as being something that is disposable in the sense that it's updated every year. It's periodical. Um, so not that many editions uh, exist, certainly not of the earlier ones. Um, and that 1761 edition, I think. A, because of the, the biographical detail that exists in it, and B, because of uh, the belief that, that these were real people, and C, because it tells a very different story to the later editions, became the edition that I wanted to kind of hang my work on. That's so interesting. I, I really, I'm intrigued to kind of find out more about how these women sort of jump out the page at you sort of why why Polly Hunt for example for this piece of work what's the process of kind of building that character and fleshing it out yeah well it does it does vary actually um so I wrote a piece about a uh about, about one of the women that was uh, so that was a completely different methodology for that I um I worked with the Foundling uh, Museum and the Foundling Hospital records. Uh, and I found um, a record of two babies that were taken in to, to the Foundling Hospital. It was essentially Britain's first children's charity. Uh, and then I found a, a woman in the list, and this was you know more of a kind of intellectual exercise. I found a woman in the list where there was some ambiguity about whether she had recently been pregnant or not. That's sort of mentioned in a slightly aside kind of way. So I chose her because it seemed like she might have had a child or there's reference to her having had a child. Um, and so what had happened to that child? Well, I connected that child to some records um, in the, the family hospital archive and then kind of wrote that story. Um, but sometimes they just kind of stay with me. And I don't know what that I don't know why that is. There's no kind of rhyme or reason to it. Um but it's got to a stage now where I kind of live with these women and uh, it feels like when they're ready to tell their stories, they tell me their stories. 
I think that's a really nice articulation of how personal sort of everyone's research is really, even if it's not as kind of explicitly creative as yours, everyone's research lives with them and stays with them in one way or another. Um, I think that's really, that was really nicely put. Um, Thank you. But I think, you know, there is, there is a critical foundation for that. Um, you know, I, I I worked certainly at the start at the outset of the project. Um, you know, I was a bit sort of rabbit in headlights, but it was when I discovered um, Robert Romanishan's work, the Wounded Researcher, that everything kind of really came into focus for me. And that, and you know, he's a Jungian analyst, and he challenges this idea that academic research is always objective, and suggests that you know we are drawn to specific subjects and and disciplines and areas um, as expressions of our own wounds and our our job is to kind of reflect explicitly on that and only once we do that and we begin to heal those wounds can we kind of transcend ourselves if you like within the research so once I I had done the work to think about well why these women why me why now it became um, it was almost like giving myself permission to, to kind of open myself up to to their stories yeah. Um, and I want to talk a bit more about your the methods that you use to go about kind of reclaiming these voices of these women, um, specifically your creative writing through the senses. Um, and I know that you've previously worked with things like movement as a way into stories. So I wanted to ask a bit more about, um, yeah, your work with the senses, why you chose sense of smell in particular for this project um, and yeah, how your methodology works there. Yeah, well, I say my methodology is still a work in progress um, and it is generally quite, quite playful. But I think my my kind of background um, is performance. And, you know, I've, I've, I've done um, a lot of kind of physical theatre, clowning, dance, uh, circus, those kind of things. And so kind of improvisation and allowing the sort of impulses of the body to dictate movement or dictate where you kind of go next um, is is a way of working that I'm kind of really familiar with. So coming into this research, um, you know, you, you start a PhD and it feels like it's all head, like that's all that matters. Everyone only cares about kind of intellectual rationalisation and reading and blah, blah, blah. And I really felt that to work with uh, with with these women whose place in history is entirely defined by a man for other men's pleasure that to to do that is effectively no matter how sympathetic I was to them I would effectively be repeating the same harm you know I, I would be I would be intellectually imposing a voice or a narrative upon them and I didn't want to do that so that's why I kind of decided to work in a much more embodied way um, and a much more intuitive way Um, and I guess kind of working with the senses initially happened um, because I did a piece of work with the Museum of London and uh, that was kind of object based so I approached a curator and said would you be able to sort of gather together a collection of objects for me small objects that could have been the sort of personal effects of a woman in the mid 18th century and it was important that I didn't choose them, that, that the curator chose them. So that it took that out of my my hands. I couldn't impose, you know, my um, intellectual uh, th- thoughts about what would make a good story on, on the objects. They had to kind of come to me. Um, and then, you know, I kind of went into the museum 
and sat with the objects and, you know, felt the weight of them in my hand and turned them over in my fingers and thought, who who owned these? How did they come into her possession? And why did she leave them wherever she left them so together? And, and that then became the basis for, for, for a story. But that sense of materiality of, you know, picking up an object like that, and, and you know, some of them were fairly commonplace, a little bone needle case, um, a little enamel patch box that was an earring, a paste earring that was missing a stone. Um, these are kind of ordinary objects that have been consciously chosen, consciously given or consciously purchased and owned and worn and discarded. And all of those things are physical processes. So that was my kind of my gateway into thinking, okay, well, if I'm going to think about the feeling of things, the weight of things, the, 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 the texture and the touch of things, what, what happens when I start to think about um, walking the same streets that somebody would have walked, walking the same route that somebody would have walked, um, smelling the same smells, eating the same food, you know, wearing stays, you know, those kind of things. How do they allow me to exercise a kind of radical empathy towards a fragment of a person, you know, in a text? Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't say that I've completely nailed down my methodology yet. <laughs> it's still a bit of a work in progress. But this feels like a way of um, working with different parts of the brain, for sure, um, and giving kind of space um, for things to emerge. That's really important, I think. I really like that term, radical empathy. I feel like that... Yeah, that seems to me like a really strong definition of a methodology that, you know, that ties all of those things together. Um, and I, I want to talk about smell more specifically as well. I wanted to ask about where you got the uh, the specific scent. Is it called limes? Um, yeah. That you sent me. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about your work with uh, florists and the perfume yeah, archive? Of course. So I, I sort of had the idea. So I really love perfume. I've always really loved perfume. Um, and I really love florists. I used to work uh, in a shop just around the corner from florists. So I would sort of enviously look through its beautiful windows. But yeah, I was looking for, um, I was looking to see who was the oldest perfumer in London that kind of still existed. And um, then to kind of explore whether they had anything um, that uh you know it, they, they they still made that had been devised in the in the 18th century and i think that notion of um being able to smell like or smell a smell that you know somebody walking around at that time would have smelled is again a, a really sensory and kind of visceral way of, of connecting you across across time um and perfume in the 18th century is really interesting because it's the decade in which it sort of becomes um, a, an art in and of itself it, that kind of solidifies and and it becomes a kind of more commercial in, endeavor. So before that, it's often sort of the preserve of um, housewifery. You know, you'll, you'll find recipes for perfumes in in sort of housewife's uh, manuals, along with recipes for ailments and food and all, all sorts of other things. Um, 
but yeah, it really kind of comes into its own. Um, so it's really interesting. And then to find that there are fragrances uh, that were effectively developed at that time is is also really interesting because you start to see um, similarities, but also differences in terms of kind of families of fragrance, um, but profiles of fragrance. And, and limes is a really interesting one because when you first smell it, you get this real sort of citrus hit, which was developed sort of euphemistically to um, combat the heat of London. In other words, you know, London stank in the summer. So if you've got this kind of sharp citrus and you smell that, it kind of cuts through the stench of the streets. But then it develops into this really kind of warm white floral heart and then a, a slightly deeper musk at the base of it. So there is there is a real sense of a journey within that fragrance, which, you know, is a little bit like a narrative arc was, was my feeling about that. But in terms of their their archive, <laughs> um, what's a perfume archive like? Well, fairly chaotic. <laughs> so it's a family business and it's still a family business. Um, and it's in this beautiful 18th century um, building. So there's lots of really steep stairs and uneven floors and rickety little offices and a very nice boardroom, which is where they, they sat me with a lovely cup of tea. Um, but most of their archive uh, is well, it's in the shop, is just in a cupboard in sort of plastic box files. Uh, and there was a really beautiful um, perfumer's manual from 1706 that stuck together with sellotape, which I was completely horrified by. Um, but there's a lot of handwritten formularies, you know, where, where um, and you can see where they've kind of been thumbed as people have gone through them. Um, and down in their basement, they, they still have uh, what used to be the perfumery, so where things were made. Um, and it, and it, it still operates like that. It's where they do because they, they they'll do bespoke perfumes. They have you know bespoke service, so that's where they do that. And you, you meet with their resident perfumer and, and go through this process. Um, so the sort of mechanics of the of the shop are kind of as they have always been. The only difference, really, I think, between now and the 18th century, is you know you will go in now and you will see beautiful uh, boxes wrapped in cellophane on the shelf, and you pluck one off and you pay for it. Whereas in the 18th century, you would have taken your own bottle in to be filled. But the idea of wearing perfume in the way that we sort of spritz ourselves with it now uh, was unknown. That isn't how people wore perfume. Generally, gloves were perfumed, um, wigs were perfumed. Um, you know, even you'd carry a little vinaigrette or something at your waist or even in a ring, that would be perfumed. You wouldn't really apply perfume to the skin. So perfumes tended to be much heavier and much more concentrated at the time as well. So there are some differences there. Um, yeah, but it's it's sort of fascinating going into a business like that that has such a long history um, and being able to sort of trace um, movements and fashions within perfume across that history. And I think, you know, you've just got to be cheeky enough to go into these places and say, hey, can I, can I sort of rummage around? I like the idea of kind of you've just got to be cheeky enough to ask. I feel like just walking into somewhere and chatting to people and kind of being in and amongst it sounds really appealing to me. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, I think I kind of feel and I've come to realise that for me, it's really important as far as these women are concerned to, to do that, because the archives, when I say traditional, the established archives, that's probably a better word. So, you know, the, 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 the British Library, the National Archive, those kind of things. They are not um, neutral places. 
that, that they are places that have historically and continue to make decisions about what to include and what to exclude. And the women that I work with have been excluded for centuries. So the notion that the archive is just that material feels really wrong to me, which is why I've consciously gone into other avenues. Yeah, that makes sense. And I feel like that circles back nicely to the idea you were saying of radical empathy of, you know, meeting these women where they're at and how they would have experienced the world and the spaces that they are allowed to be included in and where their voices are heard and where they're not heard. Um, And yeah, I'd like to I'd like to ask a bit more about these the kind of broader implications of sort of bringing these marginalised perspectives to the forefront, really, and the kind of wider implications of your work. Um, Specifically, could you tell us a bit more about um, the position of your work in discussions surrounding sort of sex positive feminism, tackling stigma surrounding sex work? How do you see your work positioned in those sorts of arenas? I think one of the key, one of the key things, actually, uh, which is probably the opposite of what I should be saying as doing a PhD, is um, I I don't assume authority. I, I don't assume that I that what I'm writing is objectively true. Yeah, you know, I've I've had this conversation with multiple historians um, because I think you know within within the discipline of history there is a a move to understand and include perspectives from marginalised people, and I think my argument is that we that we cannot do that within existing structures, systems, and forms because we are always then inherently kind of squeezing these people into those forms and in some sense re- repeating the harms that have been that have been done to them um and that perspective came out mainly from conversations that i had with um criminologist colleagues who were doing work research with with um sex workers today um and i think that you know there have always been discourses around sex work and right now those discourses seem to have uh, kind of polarized again um you know there is a discourse of uh, of exploitation uh, you know that sex work is in, is inherently demeaning and exploitative um and then there is a competing discourse um saying that actually you know it's sex work is work it's it's some people do it by choice um it's potentially empowering um and certainly in in my background when i was um you know exotic dancing um those conversations were kind of happening and i guess where i've kind of landed and certainly where i've landed with with my ladies from 1761 is um that i i, I kind of don't feel like it's either of those things and i think it's it's really i don't really see that there's any um that there's any value in imposing um either of those discourses uh or arguing for either of those sides really what what i kind of feel with these women is that they're doing what they need to do to survive that that actually there is enormous resilience in their stories and the work that they do is is just work you know it doesn't kind of 
define them, although from the outside it defines them. Um, they don't necessarily all love it or all hate it or all be destroyed by it or all be, you know, rise to, to marry aristocrats. I mean, a couple of them do. Um, th- there's no, it's just work, you know, and actually to see them as women first and sex workers second is, is probably the most respect that we can give them. Can you tell us what the output of this project looked like and kind of what the future holds for, for this sort of approach? Yeah, so principally what I'm supposed to deliver is, you know, a, a novel of his, historical fiction. Um, and I have some ideas of how that might be organised. But for me, I don't necessarily think it's the only output. Um, and I think with my background in performance, I'm certainly looking to um, write a, a show, whether that's a, a play or a, or a one-woman show, I don't, I don't know yet. Um, and in terms of a process... I think it's um I think it's part of a wider uh trend of people sort of coming into research academic research from you know different backgrounds who are starting to question and push at some of the boundaries and structures and outputs that are um, designated you know acceptable um and I think being a menopausal woman <laughs> I'm I'm very well placed to you know I've got enough rage and um enough intolerance at all the bullshit I've had to put up with for decades <laughs> to kind of be able to say and I don't care I don't I don't, I don't really care what you're insisting that I do I'm not going to do it and I'm not going to do it for these reasons and you can push me as much as you like but I'm not going to do it and and that's that may actually maybe sounds quite a childish approach but um, <laughs> I think I feel so passionately about uh the need to do things in the way that I'm doing them and I feel that where you know the institution is kind of trying to corral me a little bit which it feels it needs to do in order to make sure that I'm working at certain standards and delivering in the right way, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I actually feel like that would be committing the same harm. And, and so my resistance comes from a place of really kind of deep belief in the work and belief that, that this is not work. It's going to sound a bit woo. I'm sorry. That kind of this is work that doesn't just serve women who died, you know, centuries ago. It actually serves all women, um, and you know, perhaps more widely, all um, voices that have not historically been um, placed front and centre of discourse. Because it's a, I'm just one of many people starting to to try and sort of create new spaces in new ways and tell different stories in different ways and challenge what what knowledge is oh that was a lot wasn't it <laughs> that was great sorry and <laughs> honestly yeah I don't want to add anything else because I can't think of a better way to end than on menopausal rage and intolerance to be honest like <laughs> that's that's the note that's it thank you so much <laughs> you're very welcome 
Thank you so much again to Emma for sharing her work with us, and thank you all for listening. I've personally felt inspired by Emma's radically empathetic approach to recovering marginalised women's voices, and I have huge amounts of respect for the transformative work she's doing. I really hope this episode resonated with you as much as it did with me. If you'd like to turn your research into a podcast, please get in touch with us via email at technicaster at gmail.com. You can also reach out on Instagram or on X, formerly Twitter. See you next time.